Welcome back to the channel, everybody. We have a legend in the building. I'm sitting here with JP Jansen, the creator of the first one of one crypto collectible on the Counterparty blockchain that had an image attached. There's quite a story behind it, which I'm excited to dive into. Also, uh, the creator of one of the the early experimentations with putting a book a book on the blockchain known as JPJA. This man has dozens of articles on his website pertaining to all of the cool and different experimentations that he dabbled on Bitcoin back in 2014, 2015, and is a, a vocal leader in the historical NFT community from a technical perspective, a philosophical perspective, and just a, an interesting guy all around. So JP Jansen, welcome, welcome to the show. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That was a very nice introduction. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely, bro. Dude. You're, you're a leader in the space. And as I said before this, I've been looking for this conversation for quite some time. Of course, the the uh, time differences definitely hurts uh, scheduling from, from time to time. Uh, but there's no doubt you, uh, you've been on a podcast once before. I believe you were on Adam's show back in January, February. So there's quite a lot has happened in the historical space uh, since that time. But for those who aren't aware of you, uh, just tell us a little bit about who JP Jansen is uh, and how you found yourself into crypto um, in 2014 when you began to experiment with some of these uh, historical tokens that exist today. Uh, yeah, I was born in, in Norway, Scandinavia. Um, there was like five different things I can think of that led me into crypto and specifically into Kondofari. Uh, so first of all, my education is economics. I, I graduated with a master's degree from the Norwegian School of Economics in 2010. Um, I also, during the summers, I went to Harvard Summer School. I studied some programming just to get like, I thought it would be a very valuable skill to have. Um, during my student year, so I was also day trading stocks. So that's number three. Um, after I graduated, I worked a little bit as a as a quant analyst in New York, where I was introduced to libertarians and where I first heard about Bitcoin. So that was 2011. Uh, also, I have this, uh, I really like to do some, all these creative things on the side, like write code, write small articles, books, and so on. Uh, so in 2014, I really wanted to get to understand Bitcoin better. And I thought it would be a good idea to write a book about it. And during the research for this book in June 2014, then I came across something they called uh, Bitcoin tokens on this counterparty platform, something completely new. Uh, and that's when I started, you know, experimenting with this. And I thought it could be a good idea to put this book on the blockchain kind of, or make some tokens that represents shares in the book. So what was JPJA the first token that you uh, created on, on Counterparty? I, I'm gonna put the, I'll share the website up here in a second, because I know you have a long list of, of different mm -hmm. experimentations between uh, DeFi perpetual protocols and, and books and different ideas. Uh, was JPJA your first one? Uh, it was the third one, but it was at the same time as the first ones. So the very first one was to try the system. I created something I called. Uh, yeah, we're still here. Okay. Yep. I'm still, yeah. The first thing was uh, JP Gold. It was more like some 
uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, just like my first thought was to create, yeah, there you can see JP Gold. Um, yeah, just something scarce. I put the supply at 1000. I was testing the parameters. I fixed the supply at 1000. Um, and I didn't really think much more about it. It was simply just to try the system and see how things work. Uh, it's only recently that I figured that it was actually the first non-divisible token with a low supply. Before JP Gold, the lowest was 100,000. Uh, so that's why I wrote here the first scarce 101. Yeah, on your on your website, you've written here, there's about 20 tokens that I'm looking at between JP Gold, which was first issued June 11th, 2014, down to... Uh, close your ears for any uh, woke people here. A retired Pepe uh, from June fourth, twenty seventeen. That had a, a hundred supply. Uh, it's it's interesting. And then in the middle, there's JP Bear. You have Olga. Uh, you have well two Olgos, which we'll dive into. During the time when you were experimenting on Counterparty, were you aware of any uh, any other individuals who maybe inspired you or or saw some projects that were like, hey, maybe I should dive into things that aren't just Satoshis that are a financial asset, but maybe there's some other utility here that uh, is basically a blue ocean at this time? Uh, what can I say? When I first discovered Counterparty, um, I, I kind of had blank sheets, which is perhaps the reason I did different things than most others, because the group thinking back then was to create your own coin. And that's why most of the early assets, they had like the supply in the millions or hundreds of thousands or so on. Uh, so my thinking was more independent, I, I believe, when I first discovered it. Um, but overall, when I started like getting more involved, uh, I saw that people thought of it more as like a financial platform uh, where you could issue all kinds of different financial assets. Mm. It, it's fu it's funny you mentioned that because yeah. uh, for those who who were who are new to crypto or new to NFTs, uh, back when altcoin, we you know Namecoin was the first altcoin, uh, but that was that was more utility based. Uh, a little bit after that, you saw like MasterCoin and a bunch of these world tokens where people were just trying to pump tokens um, purely just for profit, which people do today. But back then it was pretty chaotic and everyone was just trying to find ways to uh, put their name on something and then profit off of their, their likability. Uh, and, and then Counterparty intro was introduced when Bitcoin added the, the op underscore return function, which allowed... The ability to, to create new tokens and dApps on top of it. Uh, so there's a little bit of a history lesson there. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about this book. I'm going to open it up. The economics of Bitcoin, June 2014. Yeah. When did yeah, you when okay. did you when did you start uh, writing this book? And I started uh, in in the beginning of June. So it was like a one month project. Uh, it's something I I like to do is like to challenge myself to. To do these small things, like either write something or, or write some code, open source code, or, or different things. And it, yeah, it's just my hobby, basically. Um, and it sounds like uh, from, from the five points that you brought up earlier, 
you were pretty primed. You're almost born to write this book, right? You had a background as a commodities trader. You're building code. You're hanging out at Harvard in the summer. You're just around types of innovation and out-of-the-box thinkers. So it comes at no surprise that that you wrote this book. But back then, there was no, there wasn't much information about Bitcoin, right? You got, you could source some information off a of Bitcoin talk or maybe the very depths of Reddit at that time. How, yeah, so where, where did you where did you find the, the information for this? Uh, there was uh, like those uh, Andreas Antonopoulos. Uh, there were a few other people who were like talking a lot about Bitcoin. Uh, the people I knew who were very interested in Bitcoin, who were discussing Bitcoin. Um, but the, the the thing that really puzzled me was why do they call Bitcoin a cryptocurrency? I mean. I mean, the technology is there, right? You had this token, certainly one million of them, which can be divided each one into a hundred million. So there are actually quadrillions of tokens, if you really think about it. But what makes this money or is it really money? And that's what I try to answer with this book. And also I wanted to know if there was potential for Bitcoin to, to actually go mainstream as you know the believers in Bitcoin thought it would. Um, and then, like, how much it could increase in value and so on. So, so you approached it a little bit as a as a skeptic, and then tried to apply reason to uh, it. Yeah, yeah, I, I was not bought totally into Bitcoin. I, I wasn't, I, and I still am not one of those maxis. Unfortunately, I've been maybe thinking too much and acting too little. If you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. I wish I just went all in immediately. <laughs> it's kind of how the historical mm-hmm. space is, right? <laughs> it's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of thinking and debate, uh, a little less action. Um, sometimes you don't need to dig guess for, for history. You just get to get intertwined within your, your own uh, debacle. So since you once you publish this, and right now for those who are listening, I'm pulling up the, um, the original... Uh, Bitcoin Talk Forum that you could see here that was published June 27th, 2014. It says, I wrote the ebook, The Economics of Bitcoin. It aims to relate Bitcoin to the dollar and gold. What are the similarities and where they differ? Is Bitcoin a fad or will it go forth? And then talks a little bit just about the counterparty giveaway. What was the token for? Was it a redemption where somebody purchases JPJA and then you send them the book? Was, was, Was there other applications to it. Just give us a little bit of description why a token and not just putting the book on, let's say, Amazon at the time. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote in the book uh, that I would put 50 shares for sale and 50 I would keep to myself. Uh, the price was something like $3 at first because there was no talk, token economy at the time. So I, I did, didn't do it to, to actually raise money, but I did it to show you know, the principle. And even at that price, I got like negative feedback, you know, <laughs> why are you asking for money and so on. It was a real taboo at the time. And then I think I lowered the price of 30 cents. Yeah, you can see that 30 cents. Uh, but I did sell the first five tokens for 001 Bitcoin. I, I think that was at the initial price of $3 at the time. Like, yeah. Um, and then I did three more sales later on. So in total, I sold 15 tokens. Uh, and the idea was that um, I also wanted a book to generate some real revenue. 
Um, and I, I said that, okay, whatever, uh, whatever um, donations this book receives. So I, so I said, that, you know, anyone can read this book, anyone can share it. Uh, but if you like it, I encourage you to pay me a donation. Uh, and all the donations received within the first about half year until 24th of December, until Christmas, uh, all the um, donations received until then would then be distributed among the tokens holder, holders. So you see, it was a project that would generate revenues and the revenues would then be paid back to those who invested in the project initially. So it simulates like a real stock company, you can say, or like a real company, except the scale is as small as it's possible to make it like an experiment. Uh, you, even, uh, you even have it written here uh, that it could mimic an IPO and be traded on a decentralized exchange. Please continue. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that was the, the fundamental part of this. Like when I discovered crypto tokens, I thought, wow, this this will like revolutionize finance, basically make everything even forever, like level the playing field, basically. Because like for, for how long have we had stock markets? 150 years or so? Uh, and, and the problem with them is with the stock markets is that they're very expensive. You know, you need to have quite a big company in order to be listed. But once you're listed, you have a secondhand market, you have liquidity, you have all these good things. But it's only available if you are quite a big company. But with crypto, any person at any scale with no permission can go out and issue their own share, which is equivalent. To, to stocks on the, on the stock market. And, and that's what I found very revolutionary. And and today it proves to be revolutionary and so uh, game-changing that now uh, regulatory bodies are beginning to push back a little bit because uh, they've realized that they can't completely control the 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 idea of decentralization and everyone uh, essentially can be their, their own stock market. It's quite a crazy world to see where we've progressed in eight years since you began experimenting with with these ideas yeah yeah and i think like now it has gone to like the smallest fundamental economic primitive that you can think of like people are basically creating collectibles and the collectible is backed by nothing which is a crazy idea but but it's the same as artists have always done, right? You create a painting, the painting doesn't give a revenue stream. It doesn't, I mean, it's, it's just an object. And this object, which happens, happens to be a token, it's, it's superior to anything else because you can trade it with anyone. It doesn't expire, all these nice things. Yeah, you, you, you could say, though, that a collectible is, is backed by a handful of properties. Uh, I'm pulling up, Mafiko actually put up a, a pretty good... Yeah, I mean, it can be, but it doesn't need to be. And most NFTs today, they, they are not. Right. It, I actually it, it believe that the trajectory is more like a, a U-shape. So now we're at the bottom of the U. Because at the beginning, it was like those ICOs. And all the ICOs they promised something in return. Uh, that was a, like no one would invest in something that wouldn't give them a dividend or anything like that in return. 
But the problem now, because there's zero cost to issuing NFTs, the supply is like overwhelming. 99.999% of the new NFTs will go to zero. No question about it, mm -hmm. because it doesn't have any cost of issuance. So I believe that we are now at the bottom of this U-shape, and then it will go a little bit up again, where competition will drive token creators to also promise some kind of revenue or something in return. And if that happens, I believe that my book will even be more relevant because that's what I put baked into my experiment in the first place. Yes. Well, so you, so you can say even even outside of, of the, the historical NFT evaluation criteria, if you just say collectible evaluation criteria, I would say what's actually backing it mostly is social capital. But I think in today's current tokenomic system, there's no way to really quantify it. Yes. Outside of just like the amount of people who have bought into an NFT collection, right? Like a PFP community is really just enforced by the community that it exists within. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a positive feedback loop. But then once that starts to break down and there's no social reinforcement, then it begins to, to crumble. But here, what you're saying is, since that isn't quantifiable, you don't really need the utility because it's just kind of everyone keeping themselves within the circle to purchase. But once the actual utility and NFTs begin to grow uh, for even novel things like a book where you can issue a collectible against it, or you can even just tokenize the whole book um, and then move it onto a DEX and, and sell it, that's kind of where a lot of the value um, will be created. Is that is that the right idea? Uh, the, the fact that there is something like a DEX uh, is immense. I, I mean, the, the economic value of, I mean, of having something like a DEX uh, is just, um, is, uh, is worth like trillions. I, I don't know how to, to express it, but I mean, you can literally trade any, your crypto tokens with zero risk with anyone on this planet. You don't even know, you need to know who they are. You know, can you, there's nothing like it. Even stocks on the stock market are not like that. Like how many people have a, have a broker account worldwide? Like a few hundred million maybe. But every single person on this planet, they can trade NFTs with you. You can also say too that collectibles right now, are, it's kind of pseudo equity in an individual or within an artist. Let's go to XCopy, for example. He's uh, one of the most popular crypto artists in the space. He kind of pioneered the idea of like glitch art. People who are purchasing it are more so purchasing because they have faith in him and that he's going to continually put out more collectibles and that his his image, his likeness, his, his status is only going to continually grow, which then therefore has some sort of action, usually positive, some sort of action on the value, which and which generally will therefore increase, right? So that's kind of like the the example of, of social capital that has an effect on the, the tokens or the, the art or collectibles that they issue. Similar to you, uh, let's, let's use JPJA for an example. If the idea of book NFTs continually grow, there's more application, not all of them have to be valuable, but just the utility of it continues to grow. Those 
then the, the value of your status will continually grow because you're one of the, the early pioneers in this. And also the value of a JPJA and those, those thousand tokens will also, or hundred tokens will continue to grow as well because you're the early innovator. And so it's kind of like that, that pseudo equity within the idea of it. So we'll see. I mean, a hundred indivisible tokens. Yes, it's okay. I got that right. So um, it's it's interesting uh, thought. It's an interesting idea to think about. About should do you, do you think everybody in the future will have some sort of token issued, whether it's art, a PFP, an NFT? It's on Counterparty. Do you think everyone will have some sort of collectible? Do you think that's that's something likely to happen, or or should everyone? Uh, you know, I still think that um, everyone should have like a a relationship token, like Olga. Mm. You know, so, like it doesn't, it's not made to be valuable beyond your personal valuation of it. You know, you know, like it's not meant to be traded. So t tell us a little bit about what Olga is. Now we could dive into this is... Olga was also issued later on Doge Friday, which we'll talk into. But this is, uh, I think, by far the, the, the we found consensus that this is the most popular token that you've issued and probably has the most historical significance behind it. So tell us a little bit about Olga as it as it as we look at it now from today's standpoint, and then we'll go back to kind of why you you dove into it back then. Yeah. So that was the second token that I issued. Uh, it was um, literally like I looked at the, you know, <laughs> I don't know what really, like why I, no, I, I don't know what, <laughs> uh, what to say. Like, I, I just, uh, you know, the counterparty has a name system, right? Uh, so you, it's a name system and a token system built together. So then I saw like, oh, wow, the name Olga is still available. I have to make her a token. Uh, and it has to be one unique token, right? So it was more like my inspiration to make something as scarce as it possibly can be. Only one token. Um, I took the, and there was this description field. Uh, initially, the description was like maximum like 30 characters or something. So I had to be very, very brief. Uh, so I put it at uh, Maya Vechnaya, which translates to my eternal, one and only. So it has two meanings, double meaning. Uh, so yeah, it was more like a relationship gift, I guess. So, and, you, and you did so I gave a token. And you transferred this to her um, at the time? Or, uh, or have you held it? it? I showed it to her. Uh, she was afraid to... Through to lose the keys, <laughs> so she told me to keep it on my wallet. And so then we move into the next line of the description here. Uh, when Olga's image was added was August 11, 2015, so nearly 15, 16 months after the token was created. But at the time, still no other images had been uh, attached or linked or pointed, as people say on, on, on Ethereum to the IPFS at the time. So tell us... What was the inspiration then of adding the image later, which also 
when you're looking at the screen, you can see the, the image. It looks like a, a drawing of maybe a selfie that you had taken on a phone. Uh, yes, very good. Uh, it was uh, a selfie, yes. Um, and I, uh, what, what Counterpart just had uh, an update. So you could like put as much data as you wanted inside a transaction. It was not possible a year earlier, but uh, there was an upgrade so you could finally do it. And then I thought, wow, it will be cool to put an entire image up there. Uh, so yes, we had a, this um, photo, a selfie, but I did not want to upload you know, a photo because what if someone one day discovers this photo, which I expected to happen at some point, I didn't want to put something too personal on the blockchain, which you can never remove. So I thought, okay, let's take uh, to draw, like take this, print out this photo put it on a piece of glass, draw a line along with a pencil along all the lines of the photo, then scan it, don't size it, and put it on the blockchain. So what you're looking at now is actually the the, the blockchain photo with a, a filter applied to it. If you scroll mm. down, this is what it looks like. And we got to zoom in super hard for this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I, I did it on purpose, actually, to make it uh, like more like a watermark. Or, or like a, yeah, something that was, I really didn't want to put something that was too revealing because I, I just waited for that day to come and, you know, this would explode. Not explode, but you know what I mean? Like it would be discovered. I didn't know that it would get as much attention as it did, but I knew it would get some attention at some point when someone would find it. Right. So, so, so you mentioned, I want to talk, let's dive a little bit into the idea of this relationship token and then we'll move and then we'll move on to why you issued Olga as a, a thousand tokens on Dogecoin. A relationship token, and I'm beginning to see this this pop up more about the idea of gifting NFTs to your significant other. Um, because one part, because it is permanent, which can also end really bad, right? The divorce rate in, in America, uh, I know you don't live there, but is over fifty percent, right? So that can if you want. So uh, what what, do you, what did you mean by the idea of like a relationship token? Is it to, to fortify the relationship or do you think there's there's some sort of value I unlock mean, or some sort of utility that doesn't that doesn't exist yet that you can use or leverage with the, well, with the token? From a different perspective, what, what, what's the utility of making a ring out of gold and putting it on your finger? I mean, what's the point of that? It's just sim- symbolic. And I think there's a lot more symbolism in putting something cryptographic on the blockchain that is forever. Uh, 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 and it's, yeah, it's just there. And and not just that, but I mean, you can put it on your smartwatch, for example, to symbolize, you know, I'm married or I'm in a relationship. It's a smartwatch, it's the first thing you see. I mean, it's much cooler than having a ring on your finger, isn't it? I I tend to agree. Interesting. So uh, we're we're going to replace rocks, shiny rocks, for shiny, flashy tokens, or just more uh, symbolic ones. So here, here, then we move down to uh, Olga issued as a thousand tokens on Dogecoin. Uh, my my, I'm I could assume that since it's a one of one, there's some people who want to to collect the idea of the, the historical value to it, because I'm 
assuming you're never going to sell that token or Olga is never going to sell that token. Tell us a little bit about the idea of issuing Olga on Dogecoin. Uh, same thing. It has a name system. Like, so I was very quickly to grab the name. Um, I think I grabbed it like first or one of the first days after Doge Party was launched. Um, and while immediately when you register the name, you also have to set a supply initially. You don't need to lock it, but you have to just set it somewhere. Uh, I didn't want to put it at one because I already had made one unique token. I, I mean, what's the point? Like I couldn't make another unique one. So I just had to put it at something. I don't remember why I put it at a thousand. Uh, I also made it divisible. Again, probably just to make it different from the one on Counterparty. Uh, but then I really didn't know what to do with it. I didn't add a description or anything initially. So it was more like for several months, I was like, okay, here's the token, but the watch, well, not their token, but this 1000 tokens, so what, what, what to do with them? Um, so November comes and then I came across this, uh, like I, I was studying Russian language and then I came across this poem that, I, that was like really interesting, uh, by Pushkin and this one line, um, your heavenly future, which uh, is actually untranslatable really, but directly it says, it means your heavenly features. So I just, okay, that's it. This is all Gandosh Pari. And, and are these tokens purchasable? Are, do you still hold all of them? Where the, did anybody ever collect them? Uh, I did put out a few on a dispenser. I think 10 I put out, uh, they got sold. Um, I have some plans for this token. And until like, I finalize my plans, I will not put it for sale. But possibly in a few months, I will. Ooh, there you go for some some hot alpha. Because it's it's there. like this dilemma when you have an old asset, you can't really modify it without like making it a new asset, or maybe you can to some extent. So the one thing is it doesn't have an image representation, which is a big deal for most collectors. Yeah, it, it is an uh, interesting dichotomy that that the uh, vintage counterparty and Doge party collectors find themselves in. I think it also has to do kind of with the, the the culture that exists on the blockchain. And when you move over to Dogecoin, it seems like collectors don't have an issue where you, you attach new metadata to the old token. For example, it would be adding an image to a 2014 token. It seems like most collectors don't have an issue, but wouldn't you start doing that on, on Counterparty? It seems like the collectors have, have are, are very resistant to that idea. Uh, yeah, I mean... I try to think long term. So there are like a handful that have all the characteristics from back in the day. And there are thousands that can be modified later. Um, so they become like a historical in retrospect, which makes them not really that historical. But there's like this very big gray area here. So there's like the scale. So I thought if I append an image to Doge Party Olga, the image date will be 2022 or maybe 23 if I do it next year. Mm -hmm. um, but the token itself will still be 2014. Uh, so whatever I do, um, it, uh, it has to be um, add value, if you know what I mean, like mm -hmm. be complementary to the history and add to the history, not 
try to change it because I, I think that would destroy value. But it's like once you put something on the blockchain, it's irreversible. So I'm thinking I, will, I just take my time and I'm not in a in a rush to do anything. It's a smart direction to go to because there are and there are with, with these things. It's like the, the inspiration that when I, when I when it comes, I just know that it's the right thing to do. If I'm pushing it, it will become something more generic and yeah. It's not what you want to do. There are a handful of examples in the historical community where the historical value has been destroyed by a modification of the original contract to try to sell on the secondary market, therefore uh, eliminating some of the value because of the introduction of new nuances to, I'm not going to name projects, but there's a handful of them out there that, that face that issue. So then move, moving on uh, throughout the, the Olga story, on March 26, 2021, Telegram chat there was a discovery, not a rediscovery, as the token had never been known to the public earlier. So we can say this is actually one of the few discoveries and not rediscoveries in the historical community. Uh, take me through first what had happened, right? There's this there's this long, dark period for, you could say, 2016 to 2021, where maybe you were experimenting with some tokens, and, but didn't really get some traction. And then all of a sudden... Mooncats rediscovered March 12, 2021, a few two weeks later. Olga was rediscovered, uh, kind of reinvigorating uh, all of the early experimentations that you um, had dabbled in. So t just take us through that timeline. Uh, sorry, which timeline? Uh, what, so what happened uh, during this dark period, um, we'll say from your last token creation, which I believe on the calendar says... I believe it was around 2017 or, or 2018. Uh, basically, I, st I stopped issuing tokens in 2015. I only made one in 2017. So, um, so take us through what happened up until leading up to the discovery. Okay, so after 2015 to the rediscovery, or, or do you want to... Mm -hmm. Yep, take us through that, and then we'll go through the, the rediscovery. Uh, okay, so the, the period after Olga, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so the rest of 2014, I did some more finance, finance experiments, uh, some bull and options contracts. Um, they're completely, the point was to make them completely transparent. And I hashed the research onto a PDF file on train. So you can still go and look through all the, uh, all the events, all the transactions, JP bull, JP bear. Um, uh, it's, no one else participated though it was very typical back in those in 2014 it was very very difficult to make anyone interested in anything uh so anyway i did the experiment i bought the options from myself i wrote it in the in the notes as well that i was both sides of the trade uh but yeah so it was like a, another experiment but it didn't really get that much interest uh, at the time uh, CP News, Counterparty News, it was actually a real news blog that I, where I wrote about Counterparty for a month or two or three. Uh, but again, no one participated. The point was that anyone who participated, they would get tokens as rewards. Um, and then, then they would get a share of future profit. But since no one were interested, I, I quitted like after two or three months. Um, Again, I sell those tokens for a very low price, but 
there might be some interest in them. There are not that many experiments from 2014 anyway. Um, okay, so in 2015, I was like done with all this, with all the serious stuff. Then it was more like, okay, I, I have explored tokens as like some kind of new financial building blocks. So all the serious stuff is done, but let's have fun. So that's also more the topic the next year. And this was August. Uh, I I saw that the name Salvation was still free. I decided to only issue seven indivisible tokens. I gave, and then I made an announcement anonymously. I made some the most absurd announcement I could even think of. Like, um, yeah, nothing really made sense. It was only to confuse people and make them. Uh, but, but the point was, I wanted to make them scarce and, and see if people would actually trade and actually even buy these things. So I gave one to JDog. I gave one to the community director at the time. And I wrote that his friend who had a podcast together with, but he did not get it. He did not get salvation. He would have to pay for it. So that they, you know, they beat the bait. They discussed it on the radio show. No one knew who did it. Uh, and I was just leaning back and you know, enjoying, laughing. So you're trying to introduce FOMO to, to the market, essentially. Yeah. I mean, either you buy or salvation, you don't get it. It's, it's that easy. Did anyone purchase it? Yeah. Uh, so this guy, he bought all of the remaining, I think, all of like there were three on the decks, he just bought all of them. Early, so you're even early to the to the early FOMO of uh, NFTs, which is I, th- I think uh, exacerbated uh, more so than cryptocurrencies are. Interesting. Yeah, so that was like really, yeah, it was something I just did for fun. And so then the next the next three tokens, it looks like you created some sort of trading cards, uh, Janet, Grey Wolf, uh-huh. and Loch Ness, all on the same day, November 24th, uh, 2015. Yeah, so, so that was a project that I, I started on. I called it XCP Cards. Uh, it was an attempt to make a directory of all the trading cards on Counterparty. And I also um, notarized and put the hash on the blockchain because uh, Svelte Genesis didn't do that. And I thought it would be a good property to have. Um, so I I put several Svelte Genesis cards uh, on the blockchain, or I put a hash of several. And then I also made a few on my own. Um, but my focus was writing the code, not actually making designs. So I, found, so I discovered this directory. It's what's called Weird and Wild. Uh, weird and wild beasts or something. Um, so I took a few designs from there. It it had like this Creative Commons CC license. So it was free to use. Mm. So I didn't see any harm in that. Mm. And I put the hash for them as well. Um, and I put the supply at 100. I, I locked it only when was it this rediscovery last year. And um, yeah, I think they're also like kind of some fun trading cards. Were were there Im- so you used the images and you attached them? Uh, were 
were these ever bought and sold or did you have to issue these out no, to individuals? No, no. At the time, I did not sell any or I think I made an announcement, like a small announcement, not of those cards particularly, but of the website. Uh, but what happened is uh, Counterparty had this um, uh, dev, dev, development competition that came up. So I started focusing on something else. And when this was done, I stopped working on this project. So it's kind of just, I forgot about it basically. And then we move in almost a year and a half later, June 4th, 2017, Retard Pepe, 100. The price was 0.008 Bitcoin. I'm assuming that you probably sent this into Rare Pepe to hopefully uh, find yourself in one of the, the series. It says issued anonymously and rejected. Is that what it was for? Uh, okay, I haven't really talked about this token very much. Uh, so overall, I'm, uh, I'm very happy with, I think Red Pepe is like a really cool project. Uh, but there was a few things about it I didn't like at the time. Um, I'm like, I'm afraid to create like this uh, big, uh, <laughs> this, uh, to cause chaos again. <laughs> uh, but but uh, okay, so, but there was like a lot of people complaining about Pepe as well. Like they have this, this directory, um, people get rejected. They even had to buy Pepe cash, burn it, and then get rejected. So, I mean, I don't remember how much it wasn't like any big amounts, but still people lost money trying to submit cards that never went through. Uh, they were also censoring uh, all cards that were not part of Rare Pepe. So you could not put, create your own Pepe if, and put it like on the forums and like, hey, here's my Pepe card. If it were not part of Rare Pepe, so you got all the censorship into the forums which I didn't like. Um, so that was my, basically me just testing and see how it would go if I just tried to do the same, just submit a PEP and see how it, how it went. And yes, I also got censored. It was not a cool experience. Was there an image attached to it? You created, you created an image for yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But they literally deleted it from the forums. So when I tried to make the rediscovery of this, I saw that all my posts had been deleted. So, and I hate censorship. I mean, blockchain is permissionless. Pepe is not even rare Pepe's copyright. It belongs to Matt Fury. So, that, so I mean, it, it didn't make sense. Uh, I was a community director at the time. And this part of Pepe, you know, I didn't want to make a conflict about it. And I still don't want to make a conflict. I'm just telling you how I felt. And that's why I just made this... Uh, car just to see how things made it anonymously just to see how things really worked and yes it was uh, not uh, yeah not something i liked Inter interesting have you thought so do you still own the original artwork to it yeah and you should, you should think about trying to issue this to to the like the the fake rare movement that might be an, an interesting uh encore or an interesting return to uh trying to make it around but as Pepe's are exploding in popularity, I think this token specifically, um, because of your story, your history, again, talking you about know, social I capital. I actually like to be outside of all the directories. It makes it more rare, basically. Because mm. all of them are either rare or fake. This uh, one is neither. Ah, oh, it's a pretty it smart idea. Pepe. 
Smart, <laughs> smart idea. Uh, no, is there I is there anywhere we could I, find I, the artwork? I've been in touch with me. I think it might be included in fake, and that's okay too. Let's see. So then, moving on from that, I'm going to pull up the image here uh, while while you speak. What happens in in this uh, dark period where it seems like you kind of just go, uh, oh wow, can't even find it, right? That's you literally talked about how. Um, it's disappeared, and so I just typed it into Counterparty, and it says it it does not exist. Quite interesting, uh, to say the least. So then, moving okay, on. So, so in between, I was uh, I was actually collecting names during this period. So Counterparty is a name system mm -hmm. and a token system integrated. So I wrote like some script where I just downloaded like all kind of common names, not downloaded, I save or registered all these names that were still available. Um, so that was more like my hobby to collect unique names, which is what is people, what people are doing now on ENS, Namecoin, what have you. Yeah, very, very true. So then as you're collecting, um, you drift in and out of, of crypto and find some other things to do. Olga is rediscovered. Tell us about the rediscovery. What was going through your mind? This is something that a lot of uh, collectors look forward to hearing these stories. This is something that uh, kind of carries with it with the value because uh, everyone seems to be in a different position in life, um, whether you're working for another job or completely out of crypto and it kind of pulls you back into the, those early glory days. So I'm excited to hear this. Uh, so yes, uh, before the rediscovery, I was yes, I wasn't really much involved in crypto at the time. Now, uh, I also run my own uh, rental apartment rental business, so I was busy with that basically, living family life. Yeah, easy life. And so then, what happens? This uh, individual it looks like it's in uh, Telegram. Says they found Olga. How did they reach out to you um, to try to find out who exactly you were? Uh, tell, yeah, tell us a little about it. Uh, yeah. Um, one morning, I received an email from one of those uh, people I, I knew from the community. Uh, he offered like $1,000 for my token. And it was like, what, <laughs> what, is, what is going on? Um, and I said, no, it's not for sale. Uh, but he was very kind and, you know, told the whole story and why it was interesting and why why people were interested in it and talking about it and and all that. Uh, he showed me the Telegram chat and there, there I saw, you know, the discussion. And so then from this day, did you, did it take you a little bit to realize what was happening uh, within this, like, rediscovery of all the other tokens, even on, on Ethereum, and then even Namecoin was getting some attention. Did you understand immediately the idea of historical significance? Uh, significance, uh, no. First of all, I didn't know that it was the first unique token on Counterparty. The platform had been around for a year. No, sorry, six months. So I was very surprised to find it, it like it was the first in that category. Uh, second, uh, it's it's crazy how you forget things. So when we got that email and I showed it to Olga, 
it was like, yeah, we remember it, but we didn't really remember all the details. Mm-hmm. For example, there's this glitch in in X chain. It doesn't show any character that it's not like uh, ASCII, like not um, only the English characters. So yeah, you can see here, it doesn't show the Russian part of, of the description. Mm. Um, so that part, for example, like uh, a new one and only, I knew there was something more to it, but I couldn't like put my finger on it. Uh, and then I went to the counterparty database and I saw, okay, it's Maya Vechna in Russian, one and only. It's the actual real description. So it's basically a bug on next chain. Yeah, this, it's quite, quite unique. So now... Fast forwarding to where we are today, you're, you're uh, a vocal figure in the space. You continually contribute not only timelines, but information, ideas. <clears throat> and now we find ourselves in a, in a quite contentious community um, discussing and debating the ideas of significance, uh, one of ones, one of ends, uh, right? U- ultra niche kind of ideas, uh, as you, you call it, the first one of one crypto collectible, although, you know, there's NFTs that expire on Namecoin, which some people call, uh, call those the first. What, what do you think of just the overall space in general? Is it important to define all of these ultra niche ideas of first? Uh, is it important to ascribe significance? And, uh, and how do you tend to think and go about where we sit today within the community? So first of all, I, I really enjoy those discussions. Um, okay, some some people take it too far and start personal attacks and so on, and that's not cool. But disagreements, on the other hand, is very interesting. You know, everyone have their own perspectives. Everyone have their own economic interests. Obviously, I do as well. Everyone does. So it's it's like this very weird thing to debate because. The timestamps, they are there on the blockchain. You can't dispute the blockchain facts. So instead, it's more about defining language. So it's like, okay, this is this is what it is. This is what something else is. Uh, but something else is the same as that is. So and this is, uh, this is, you know, so it's like a very messy discussion, basically. And there's not like a academic record or, or like academic definitions of things. So everything is all new. And then you can just um, discuss until, uh, yeah. And, and no one will agree ever anyway. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I can easily, you know, make my argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think everyone agrees on the non-fungible part. But I mean, it's the first unique token on Kondopari, which makes it the first non-fungible. Uh, and within Kondopari as well, it's very easy, like within the specific of this one platform, that is the first non-fungible token on Kondopari. Uh, but then the discussion goes into, uh, what about all these non- non-fungible assets on other platforms that came before? And the Namecoin people, they say, okay, Namecoin uh, records, Namecoin domains, they're also tokens. Uh, and then they say, okay, but there's no real definition of what makes a token, right? So 
I, I mean, I can't say that they're wrong because there isn't a real definition. Uh, but at the same time, uh, no one has ever called name records tokens before it became profitable to do it this year. It has always been referred to as domains or records. Uh, sometimes, um, of course, they've been used in special cases like for identities. Uh, but overall, it's a completely different asset class designed with totally different trade-offs. It's not a, a token platform. So in terms of token platform, I don't know any non-fungible tokens that were created before Olga. In terms of assets, yes. But in terms of tokens, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know any earlier ones. Yeah, that is actually a different, uh, interesting uh, differentiation. Uh, as we know, Vitalik in the Ethereum white paper also calls them non-fungible assets, not non-fungible tokens. Um, so there is a clear line there. I know Embercoin also had some some registrations in 2013, but again, also the uh, idea of expiration exists on that as well. So uh, defining what a token is, it's interesting because as you move across the different blockchains, the value is kind of ascribed to different ideas. In Namecoin, it's, it, the value exists within the registry, right? The earlier the the token was was registered, the the idea the idea or the the experiment we know existed then, and then the token it tends to be within a debate, um, and people prove their own thesis on both sides. So uh, for me, it's a little bit tough to, to really know as, an, as a non dev. Yeah, um, and then there's this uh, second discussion about Namecoin. Of course, if a name that expired and then was re-registered, mm-hmm. which timestamp is valid? Is it the initial one or is it a re-registration one? And I mean, blockchain is permissionless. If people want to put the value on the initial registration, let them do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, I don't agree with them on that. I, I don't think it has a provenance Oh, a name that has been continuously updated from the beginning. And that's just my position. If you have a different position, feel free to have one. Mm-hmm. So uh, then again, I don't really get the point of discussing this back and forth day after day. So I kind of just stopped even mentioning those things. Yeah, so you save yourself a lot of energy. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll move off of Namecoin for a second. Uh, for me, I actually value the registry more. Uh, there is actually uh, some value for the existence of the UTXO. Does the UTXO or the the token exist during expiration? Again, it goes back and forth, and it, we're probably never going to come to an actual decision. Uh, but those, uh, it is, it's definitely um, undeniable, though, that if a token never expired, it seems like everyone kind of has an agreement that that is the uh, the foolproof original form of it that's going to have more value. And I know you. I listened to your to your podcast on uh, with Adam back earlier this year, where you also maintain the same position that the non-expired tokens from 2011 will probably have a, a higher premium down the road when there's more participants um, within the ecosystem. Yeah. So also after that show, I, I did more research, and it turns out to be something like thirty or forty thousand namecoin to- or namecoin domains that have never expired. It's, it's a, a massive amount that never have expired. But they're also usually not for sale or not that often for sale. 
so they don't really get that much attention. Uh, the other thing about those that never expired, uh, I tried to go through that list, it's an extremely big list, but without exception, these are intended as domains from what I could find. Like there are, there are none of those with an image link or anything like that. They usually have an IP address. Yeah. So I, I think what, what happened is that that there were some people who created those, those bots mm -hmm. that just registered tens of thousands of good names. Uh, and then they have had this bot running for, you know, 10 years and always updated them. Yeah, something like this. Yeah, so this one actually I own. I managed to uh, talk with someone before Namecoin blew up and uh, negotiated a trade. Had to go through some some old messaging systems to, to actually get in touch. And so this one appears to have uh, never expired, right? Um, unless this is the, the expiration, but you, you'll find a handful of these unless this was just traded and somebody mm, else updated it. I think it, it did uh, go up again. So it did expire at some point, right? If you go all the way up, uh, register since. So, so that's my position that register since is the most valid mm -hmm. yeah. timestamp. That's what I'm looking at. The which one? So there's register since mm -hmm. and there's first registration. Yep. If it has continuously been updated, those two numbers will be the same. Those two timestamps will be the same. For first register. But it seems like sometime in 2019 or something, it was not renewed. Uh, um, yeah, pause. quite possibly. Um, I lose focus on this. But yeah, so the continuous ones, that's and that's the earliest domain that I personally own. And it's also my name, so I'll, I'll probably never ever sell that. Um, but yeah, so then moving into kind of counterparty and and then ethereum and then you have the, the conflictions of, of first there where do you think well first let me ask this how important is it to to have these uh philosophical debates and then at, at some point what at some point then how do we move on past the philosophical to debate to then build out the the ecosystem of historical nfts and kind of uh, become more of a community that that's undivided, or do you think that can never happen? I think there's definitely going to be separate camps. Mm -hmm. It's always like that with everything. Like yeah, these political camps, also in historical. So we just have to deal with it. You know, there are Namecoin Marxists, there are Pepe, those are Pepe Marxists. Um, there will be those who maybe are more into those pioneering tokens that I made and others made in 2014. Uh, others will focus on art. Uh, but those big fights that we're seeing, uh, if they will resolve, I don't know. Probably not. I think they will just keep going. Uh, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it creates more, as long as there's some economic energy in the system, there is going to be fighting. And overall, it makes things more interesting. <laughs> although, although what might hurt the overall ecosystem are when people lose money mm -hmm. and they lose money on false narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to 
start a fight by, you know, saying which ones that I think are the worst or the best yeah, or no, anything like that. No, but, uh, no need to define it, but tell me what what yeah. do you what do you think is false narratives? Um, I, I can go a little bit into depth of this because. You know, you get to hang around in it. Uh, the, the the critique for those that aren't in the space is that NFT archaeologists uh, dig up these these older projects and then um, add false narratives to it, which sometimes I don't believe is actually a false narrative, but might just be a, a false claim because everyone wants to be first. Um, and then it comes into everyone has also a different taste, right? So you find these old projects and um, the... The, the way that they value it is much different than the way that others do. Um, and sometimes it even moves out, out of the traditional sense, which pushes the boundaries. So, so then be, regarding like false narratives and um, kind of just the integrity and merits of, a, of an archaeologist or NFT historian, uh, how, how, do you, how do we maintain the, the credibility of the space um, channeling through these like projects that, that surface every so often? Also, regarding what makes something like a false narrative is when you're misleading, like here is a very relevant timestamp, they don't show it. Then it's like um, on the edge of being false. Of course, if you literally give false information, then it's totally fake. Um, but, but I think there's a completely different aspect to this as well uh, that will always be around. And that's there are two kind of collectors, the long-term collectors who genuinely just want to sit on it, hold it for a long time. And there are other speculators who think of this as a casino and they just want to flip, right? And then naturally there will be, the market gravitates towards like a few voices that like when they speak, the price of everyone wants to buy this because everyone else wants to buy it. So, so there's like this casino effect in part of the market. Uh, and that's, of course, very frustrating for, for many. But it's just what it is. Yeah. Uh, as long as you're honest about this, it's sort of like a negative sum game. Like a casino is a negative sum game. And it just happened to be that those, I don't know the English word, but we, we, in Norway we call it um, the sheep with a bell. You know, like there's one sheep that has a bell hanging and all the other sheep follow that that one sheep. Yeah, following the so herd, following like, the herd. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, it's you're bringing up the, the same idea that most people, most regular community members in the historical community discuss, which is the idea of like collectors versus flippers. Flippers is a negative sum game. Collecting is generally a positive sum game because the more holders that you have, the, the larger the pie will grow because you're not really trying to extract liquidity from the market. You're trying to grow the liquidity um, that maybe that maybe you sell down the road at some point. But there's also that that social connection to the token as yourself with, with Olga or me with uh, the domain jake.bit because it is my name and was registered then. All of the different values I describe. And we exist in an ecosystem where there's no traditional rarity system or trait rarity system like you see with with crypto punks or board apes where you take 20 20 traits randomly generate it and now it's easy to decipher what is the rarest statistically and and visually uh, as well
So, uh, yeah. So, what, what was the question? There was no question. It was just a. Yeah. It was just kind of, kind of, kind of a statement. Yeah, kind, kind of just yeah. riffing. So then, um, for yourself, for JP Jansen, you've put out a ton of ton of work uh, on your website. There's at least fifteen or twenty articles over the last year and a half or two years since you've uh, since you've resurfaced. You're back in the crypto space. You're you're adding uh, a lot of. Inf- information um, objectively and subjectively. Do you plan to create any new projects? Do you plan to just hang out? What does the, the future of JP Jansen look like in, in the space? Uh, for me, it's more about discovering the, the history of NFTs and the prehistory mostly. Uh, because I'm just fascinated by it. Like I know that I'm part of it and I'm trying to figure out like what exactly my part has been or is so, so there's uh, yeah basically this archaeology work is the prehistory pre-token is it- uh i don't know where you draw the line it depends who you ask so you might say it's pre-erc 721 it's prehistory by some standards i i would say it's all before and after <laughs> uh, that's a joke we got ao and bo right <laughs> There's before. Uh, I love that. The community has kind of conformed around the idea of pre-ERC-721. And it's, it's tough, too, because the introduction of smart contracts adds so many new parallels to valuing, right? Because you can have the, the contract creation date, then you have the token issuance date. It's not something that is an issue with with a Doge party and counterparty and Namecoin. So pre-ERC-721 seems to be the the standard and then of course you have pre-ERC20 which is literally like four or five projects a few of the domain uh experiments and, and Ethereum are really like the only one so that's kind of like a, a class within its own so interesting to see what the next uh, milestone marker will be down in yeah, the future and that's actually a debate that I really enjoy it's like this uh, what really is worth collecting is it like names or tokens or assets like uh, like these are totally different classes, and no one can, you know, objectively say that a name is not worth collecting, while tokens are, or, or vice versa. I mean, it's, it's up to everyone what they like. Like myself, I, I like both. They're, they're just different. So, like I said, I, I collected like three thousand names on Counterparty because I just thought it was like fun to find all these names, give them some description, but not issue tokens on those names. Just keep them as they are. The purity, the purity. So it, it, mm-hmm. quite interesting, actually. So for a pioneer yourself who has uh, created the before Olga or, uh, and after Olga, you've collected a fair share names, 3,000, and you've also created your fair share of, of NFTs and DeFi experiments. So you've kind of experienced it all. And so you get to sit right in the middle of it. Uh, JP, I, th- I thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, your yeah, in- Jake, your, thanks for having me. Your input is always very, very valued. You tend to take a, a very objective approach and then add some some sort of some subjective thoughts on it as well. Uh, you're very oh, valued. Way, Jake, members, are you going it. to Barcelona to the festival? I won't be there, unfortunately. Oh, I'll be and uh, yeah. I uh, I committed to. I'll be speaking on historical NFTs down in San Francisco at a conference. I committed to it uh, a few months prior to uh, HNFT uh, mm-hmm. announcement, and so uh, I'm somebody who, if I make uh, if I if I commit to it, then I'm 
probably going to stay to it. So next year I'll definitely be there, but I'll be uh, as vocal as ever. Maybe uh, maybe they can stream me in one of these times, maybe for next year, next, uh, what is that, two weeks? But yeah. I hope you guys have fun with me. I know they're doing like a scavenger hunt. Um, they, I saw they just put out the topics today. A lot of interesting and fascinating topics. They didn't say who the speakers were for each topic. So uh, I know you're going to give some valued input. I hope that uh, they record it so that I could watch it uh, at a future date. And uh, I thank you guys for listening and watching. Make sure you go to the HNFT Fest. It's going to be a blast down in Barcelona Give JP a follow, maybe purchase some of his tokens um, that are available in a scarce manner. And uh, thank you guys for watching. We'll catch you next time.